This morning, I am in the third week of a sermon that I have entitled, The Practical Gospel. And it's basically drawn from Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 13, which Paul says this, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And my understanding of what he's trying to communicate here is that now that Jesus has saved you, he's brought you in a relationship with God, work out the implications of that gospel, of that salvation to every area of your life. Not that you work for your salvation. No one can be right with God on the basis of their good works. But he says work out the implications into every area of your life. And so what I'm attempting to do this sermon series is do just that and, and kind of give us an opportunity to think through how do you apply the gospel to love life as we looked at two weeks ago, to parenting and family last week. And today is going to be work and vocation. How do you apply the truths of the gospel to work and vocation? Uh, I like the word vocation. It's a word that you don't hear as often as work. But if I said work, you know, that you feel like what do you, when you hear work, you think of well, what you do to make a living to earn money. And some of you maybe are retired. Some of you maybe are unemployed. Some of you are students. And so you think, well, I don't really work. But vocation is more than just work. It comes from the Latin word uh, vocare, which communicates this, a divine call to God's service or to the Christian life or a function or station in life to which one is called by God. So there's, I mean, there's a secular meaning of, of vocation, you know, of what job you do. But this is kind of the Christian meaning of where it kind of originated from, a sense that you're not just in your station in life by your own choosing, but that there is someone who has called you there. That he has placed you in the relationships you're in, in the job you're in, in the setting you're in. So what does it mean to live out that vocation that God has called you to? What does it mean? How does the gospel uh, affect that? How does the go- what are the implications of the gospel for that? Whether, it is you, uh, whether you're a student or a homemaker or an entrepreneur engineer, teacher, whatever it may be, wherever you may find yourself, what does it look like to live out the station to which God has called you during this season? If you want to go deeper into this, I'm not going to try to give you everything you know, there is to say about the relationship between faith and work. Uh, I think the best book on that subject is this one, Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work by Tim Keller and Catherine Leary. I highly suggest this if you really want to go deeper into how to connect your work to God's work. But this morning, I just want to, again, tease out the implications of the gospel using this. This is the summary statement I've used this series. This is the gospel summary statement. We are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace, learning to live as new creations according to God's will, trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. Now, there's a past, present, and future dynamic dimension to that, right? We're sinners who have been saved and justified by grace. We'll look at what are the implications of that past dynamic. Then we're learning to live as new creations according to God's will. What are the implications of that present dimension? And then trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. So we're going to take this one part at a time, beginning with the past dimension. We are sinners who've been saved and justified by grace. And there's two things I want to say about this, two implications. The first, which you may recognize from the last two sermons, is this. Our self-worth does not depend upon our job, our performance, or our employment status. Let that one sink in just in case your heart doesn't believe that. Your self-worth as a human being does not depend upon what job you do, what your performance is at that job, whether you think you're doing a good job or not, whether your boss thinks you're doing a good job or not, 
whether your customers think you're doing a good job or not. Your self-worth does not depend upon that. It doesn't even depend upon whether you have a job or not. I mean, so often when you're meeting someone for the first time, you may ask what their name is, and then a follow-up question may be, what do you do? What do you do for a living? Because it's so often that's a central part of our identity, not just what our name is, but how do we spend 40 hours of our lives for most of us? What do you do for a living? And so often we can find our identity in what we do. But the problem, of course, is that when your identity is that tied up in your job, then your self-worth rises and falls on the basis of your job performance, on the basis of whether or not you have a job. But the gospel declares that we are saved and justified by Jesus and his death for us, that Jesus has declared us righteous, right with God, worthy in his sight, not because of what we've done or haven't done, not because of what job we have or don't have, but because of what he's done for us. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That you are right with God, not on the basis of your works or what you do for work, but on the basis of Jesus' death for you. So again, we are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace. It means that we are separated from a holy God by our sin, by our rebellion. We cannot save ourselves by our own good deeds, can't save ourselves by trying harder. But God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus and he lived that perfect life that we could not live. And he died on the cross, a sacrificial death in our place, taking the penalty our sins deserve, rising from the dead, making a way for us to be right with God. And so we're saved from the penalty of our sins, saved from eternal separation if we put our faith in Jesus. And we are justified, which means we are declared righteous, not guilty before a holy God. Saved and justified, not by what we've done, but by grace, a sheer gift of God's. And now there's no condemnation in Christ, nothing that can separate us from his love, not even a negative performance review, not even being laid off from work. Nothing can separate us from the love of God and from the righteousness we have in him. So that's the first thing that we need to know. The first implication of the gospel for our vocation and our work is that our self-worth is not tied to what we do or to anyone's evaluation of what we do, that our identity is secure in who God says we are. The second thing is this, that we can rest in God's sovereignty and approval even when we're working. What do I mean by that? I'm going to try to take you to a deeper level than what you do for a living, but now we're talking a little bit more about the heart-level stuff, motivation, what's going on in your soul when it comes to work. Some of you are old enough to remember the 1981 movie Chariots of Fire, a movie about two British track athletes, one Harold Abrams, who was a Jewish man, and the other Eric Little, who was a Christian, who competed in the 1924 Olympics. And in that movie, they each have a quote that reveals the difference between the rest that is found in the gospel And what happens when you don't have that deeper rest? This is, Harold Abrams said this, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Those are the words of a man who sees the 100 meter dash as the thing that will justify his existence. I need to win or else what have I given my life to? And then we have Eric Little who said this, I believe God made me for a purpose but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. You see the difference? 
one person running to justify his existence, that his self-worth depends upon the outcome of this race. And the other person, who knows that the verdict is already in, whose self-worth does not depend upon how he does in this race, who's running because of the pleasure that it brings God and the pleasure it brings him. One who's weary, even when he's resting, because he's consumed by that need to prove himself, and the other one who can rest even when he's weary, even when he's running, because he knows on a deeper level that he's right with God, that the verdict is in. Again, think on a deeper level here about your motivation when it comes to work and vocation. Think about that need we have, so many of us, to prove ourselves on a deeper level so that even when we're resting, we can't rest. We need to work. We need to prove ourselves. We need to provide for ourselves. We need to find security in our work. We need to gain a sense of worth from what we do. But there's a deeper rest found in the gospel. And when you have that, you still can work hard, but underneath that hard work is a deeper rest because you know the verdict is in. You know that your self-worth is not depend upon how you do at work. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11 puts it this way. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Says there is a deeper rest, a Sabbath rest. Matthew 11, Jesus talks about this as well. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It's that picture of a yoke, that you yoke two oxen together and they go in the same direction. He says, yoke yourself to me. Be found in me. Go along with me, and you will find that there's rest for your soul, even when you're working. Because my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And Hebrews 4, 2 through 3 tells us where this rest is found. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Where does the rest come from, he says? From believing the gospel. That Jesus already accomplished everything that we could not on our own. He took the penalty we deserve for falling short of the glory of God, and he gives us his perfect righteousness, his perfect standard, so we're right with God. The verdict is in, and you are loved, you are worthy, you are enough. Regardless of how the business does, regardless of what the boss says, regardless of whether or not you have a job or not, the verdict is in, and you are enough. You are worthy. That's what I'm talking about here, that there's a deeper rest that is found in the gospel. Even when you're working hard at your job, you're not trying to work to prove yourself, to prove anything, because the verdict is in, and you know that you are worth God's love and God's son. So that's the first part. We're sinners who've been saved and justified by grace. The second part is this, that we're now learning to live as new creations according to God's will. That when we come to faith in Jesus, he forgives us our sins, but he also puts his Holy Spirit in us. And now we're new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come, and now we're learning to live for God according to his will, his heart, his values. So what are the implications of that 
for our vocation. The first is this, that God has good works for us to do. God has good works for us to do. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 that said, we're saved by grace, not by works. The verse right after that says this, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This verse is often twisted to make it about your self-esteem. I see this everywhere where, where people are plastering this, saying like, you know, you're God's masterpiece, you're God's workmanship, but it's not about your self-esteem at all. It's about your purpose, that God saved you, but it's not just to make you right with God, it's to save you for a purpose. He's created you anew in Christ Jesus and given you good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. Individually, you. God has good works for each of you to do. That there is a purpose, there is a responsibility that God has given to each of you to do. Again, your good works do not save you. They don't make you right with God, but he has saved you to do good works because your neighbor needs your good works. Your good works matter to this world. It's not about trying to earn God's favor. It's about trying to love your neighbor as he has loved you. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. There's that good works, good deeds. That Jesus says, you have been given good works to do by the Father. You've been saved to do those good works. You have been given a purpose, a responsibility. I don't care if you're a student, a homemaker, an engineer, a teacher, a grandparent, whatever it may be, whatever station he has you in in life, he has given you good works to do. And it's not just work to earn money, it's works. Maybe to be a good spouse, maybe to be a parent, a grandparent, a neighbor, a friend, whatever it might be, God has given you good works. You know, one of the things I was struck with as I prepared this sermon was just the realization that way back in the beginning, that work was a part of creation. In paradise, they worked. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Paradise was not everyone with their feet up, you know, on the couch, right? Paradise included purposeful labor, ruling the earth and subduing it. Part of paradise, part of what it means to be created in the image of God is to have responsibility, is to work. You were created for good works, for responsibility. It was the fall that turned it into toil, Genesis 3, 17 and 19. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your lives. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and in dust you will return. Because of the fall, work becomes toil. It becomes hard. It becomes thorns and thistles. It's no longer the, the, the beautiful part of creation that it was created to be. But don't lose that element that even in paradise, there was work. They weren't created just to kind of hang around and do nothing. That having purposeful work to do 
a purposeful vocation is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. It is part of what you were created to do in Christ Jesus. I know so many people think that paradise would be just doing nothing, just laying on a beach all day. But it's not. That is not what you were created for. You were created to have purposeful, meaningful vocation. That is part of life to the full. Even in the end, we're going to get to this in a little bit, but even at the end in Revelation 22, there's work. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And again, I'm speaking of things I don't understand because I'm talking about what it's going to be like on that day when heaven and earth are one and we're with God forever. But it says that those of us who are there will reign with him forever over this new creation, this new heavens and earth. And I don't know what that means, but it does seem to mean, again, that purposeful vocation, purposeful labor is part of even the new creation. It's not disembodied people strumming harps for all eternity. That somehow, from the beginning to the end, Purposeful work is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. It's part of life to the fullest. Again, the point is that work is not just a necessary evil that you need to survive until you can retire and then travel for the rest of your life, but that you have been given a vocation in every season of life, whether you are a student, a homemaker, whether you're working in an office, whether you are retired and a grandparent, whatever it may be, God has given you purposeful vocation to do. You are meant to take responsibility alongside him to care for this world, to serve others. Walking in that responsibility is part of what gives life meaning and purpose. You know that God gives people gifts and talents. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, Paul says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That's the vision, he says, that God has equipped each of you with gifts and talents that are not given to you just so you can say, look at how talented I am. And they're not just given to you so you can use them to make as much money as you possibly can for yourself, but they are given to you for the common good. God has given each of you gifts and talents to be used for the common good, to take responsibility alongside him, to serve others. Jesus was a rabbi, and he was also a carpenter. Paul was a missionary, and he was also a tent maker. Those gifts and talents take many different forms. But please, make no mistake, God has given you good works to do. It was part of creation, part of paradise in the beginning. It'll be part of the new heavens and the new earth. What are the vocations to which he has called you in this season? What does it look like to live in those good works that he's given you to do? As Tim Keller and Catherine Leary Alsdorf wrote in that book that I mentioned earlier, the question regarding our choice of work is no longer what will make me the most money and give me the most status. The question must now be how, with my existing abilities and opportunities, can I be of greatest service to other people, knowing what I do of God's will and of human need? Now that's a big question. I understand. But I dare you to ask it. How can you use the gifts and talents that he has given you for the common good? Or as Bruce Waltke put it, the very definition of righteous people is that they disadvantage themselves to advantage others, while the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves.
God has given you good works to do. What is the vocation he has called you to? Second element is this, work as if working for the Lord. This is what Paul said in Colossians 3, 23 to 24. It's a revolutionary way of approaching work, so pay attention to this one. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, in the context, I think he was writing it to slaves, actually. And he's encouraging them, if you, if you can't get your freedom, remember, you're working for the Lord, not for men, not for your master. You're working for God. So work as if you're working for him. What would it look like for you in your vocation, wherever God has placed you, what would it look like to see it that you are working to please him, not for a boss or not for the customers, not for your coworkers, what would it look like to take that approach? I'm working for you. You are my boss, Lord. And so I'm going to do everything to bring you honor and glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What would it look like if you found yourself in a family that was difficult to love, but you said, I'm going to love them as unto you, Lord, because I'm going to love them for you, for your, because you deserve it. Or if you were in a neighborhood and you were called to serve and love your neighbors and you struggled with that, but you said, I'm going to love them as if I'm loving you, Lord. Or if you have to work with coworkers who are difficult to work with. Or a boss and you say, I'm working for you, Lord. I'm not working for them. I'm working for you and I'm going to do everything for your glory. Again, we are learning to live as new creations according to God's will. We're not doing things the way we once did. Now we are living for God and that means recognizing that God has good works for us to do, that work and responsibility is a part of what it means to be created in the image of God. So what are those good works he's given you to do in whatever vocation you find yourself? And then second, work as if you're working for the Lord. Even if bosses and coworkers and customers don't deserve it, he deserves it. The last part is this, that we're sinners who've been saved and justified by grace, learning to live as new creations according to God's will, trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. That we know this life is not all there is, thank God. So those of us who find ourselves either working in jobs that we can't stand or stuck in circumstances we can't get out of or never feeling like we measured up to that which we wanted to do or never had an opportunity to work at that which we really wish we could have worked for, this world is not all there is. And that means two very important things. The first is this, trust that you will have perfect fulfillment in your vocation forever. Let me explain that. Again, because of the fall, the reality is that work on this side of eternity is toilsome. It's frustrating. There's thorns and thistles, so to speak. Your sin gets in the way. Circumstances get in the way. Other people's sins get in the way. And it never quite reaches that fulfillment that you had longed for. And so our attitude often becomes like that of the author of Ecclesiastes who said this, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. That was someone who was trying to find his meaning in work and realized it's just so meaningless and pointless so often. And then Paul lays this out in Romans 8 about the frustration that comes in this world. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. In other words, that last day when heaven and earth are one and sin is no more. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Anyone ever groan at work before? Anyone ever groan in your vocation? It says, that's the way it is, this side of eternity. Because of the fall, we just groan, and creation groans, longing for that day when sin will be no more, and we will finally be revealed, and we'll have that perfect vocation, as it says again in Revelation 22, 5, that we will reign with the Lord forever over the new heavens and the new earth. Again, I don't know what that means, but I do believe it means that all the frustration this side of heaven will give way in the light of eternity. When we have that perfect relationship with God, the perfect family of God, the perfect work to do, everything is perfected. So all the frustration of this world fades away in the light of eternity. And so lastly, I want to say this. Trust that everything you do for the Lord matters eternally. Everything you do for the Lord matters eternally. As frustrating as it may be, this side of heaven, because of the resurrection, it all matters. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not a chasing after the wind. It's not meaningless. Everything you do for the Lord, every single little thing you do in the vocation in which he has called you up unto the Lord matters eternally. Again, I'm speaking to things beyond my comprehension when it comes to eternity. But there's a great passage in Revelation 21, verses 22 to 26, where John writes this, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. It seems to be saying, for as I read this, you know that saying, you can't take it with you. This seems to be saying there is some continuity between this world and the next. It gives this picture of the kings of the earth and the nations bringing their splendor into the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. That at the end, heaven and earth are one, and this world is remade, and we dwell with God forever on a remade heaven and earth. And that somehow it seems to be saying that the fabric of eternity will in some way involve and include everything that was done for the Lord this side of heaven. Everything that brought honor and glory to him will somehow be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. It won't just be wasted and thrown away. That everything we do for the Lord will matter eternally in some incredible way that I have yet to fully understand that one day we will see. Bruce Milne put it this way. He said, nothing of ultimate worth from the long history of the nations will be omitted from the heavenly community. Everything with, which authentically reflects the God of truth, all that is of, all that is of abiding worth from within the nat- national stories and the cultural inheritance of the world's peoples will find its place in the new Jerusalem. The point, again, is that everything that you do in the vocations that God has called you to, this side of eternity matters forever in some way that is beyond our comprehension. Every time you serve your customers in love, 
every time that you repay a coworker's nastiness with love and forgiveness, every time that you honor a boss, every time that you love your kids, grandkids, neighbor, everything you do to honor him matters eternally. And so the toil and the frustration that is found this side of eternity, as hard as it is here, somehow is going to be redeemed, I believe, forever, eternally. It all matters. Everything you do for the Lord matters. One of the great illustrations of the relationship between now and and heaven was found in a short story by J.R.R. Tolkien called Leaf by Niggle. J.R.R. Tolkien, of course, is known for the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. And the story goes that while he was creating the Lord of the Rings, he reached an impasse. And it was just so overwhelming, he despaired that he'd ever complete it. And in the midst of that despair, he wrote this short story called Leaf by Niggle. And the story introduces a man called Niggle. And Niggle's a word about people who focus unnecessarily on small details and, and neglect the big picture. And he, he knew that's kind of the guy he was. And he focused so much on the little details of his story that he was running the risk of never completing Lord of the Rings. So the story introduces a man called Niggle and says that Niggle has a long journey to make. And that long journey is a metaphor for death, that one day, you know, death will come for him. And he's a painter, and he has this huge canvas where he's trying to paint this masterpiece, this, this landscape of trees and rolling hills and fields and all of this. But because he's a niggler, he's, he spends so much time on the details of one little leaf in the corner of the painting that he never quite can get to the rest of the painting. And he also keeps getting interrupted, mainly by his neighbor who needs care, and he keeps having to interrupt his paintings to go care for his neighbor, Parrish. And sometimes he's just idle and he just procrastinates and he doesn't get around to it. And so he has this huge canvas that has this little leaf that he keeps working on to make it perfect, but he keeps neglecting the rest of the canvas. And then it says in the story an inspector comes because there's a flood and they need to take his canvas and his wood to help make houses. And at the same time, a driver arrives and announces to him it's time to take him on his journey. That Niggle gets sick in the flood and, and then the driver comes to take him on his journey, a metaphor that he has died and he's taking him and he's crying that his painting is not finished. And in the story, it says the corner, the corner of his painting was hung in a museum with a painting called Leaf by Niggle until the museum burned down and the painting was forgotten. That's how the story goes. But in the meantime, Niggle boards a train. Niggle boards this train for the journey and he gets off the train in another country and then In the story, this is what happens. It says this. Niggle pushed open the gate, jumped on the bicycle, and went bowling downhill in the spring of sunshine. Before long, he found that the path on which he had started disappeared, and the bicycle was rolling along over a marvelous turf. It was green and close, and yet he could see every blade distinctly. He seemed to remember having seen or dreamed of that sweep of grass somewhere or other. The curves of the land were familiar somehow. Yes, the ground was becoming level, as it should, and now, of course, it was beginning to rise again. A great green shadow came between him and the sun. Niggle looked up and fell off his bicycle. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished. If you could say that of a tree that was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch, he gazed at the tree and he slowly lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. He was referring to his art and also to the result, but he was using the word quite literally. He went on looking at the tree. All the leaves he had ever labored at were there, 
as he had imagined them rather than as he had made them. And there were others that had only budded in his mind and many that might have budded if only he had had time. Beautiful, isn't it? And he goes on to see the birds and the forest and the mountains and everything else that was meant to be part of that canvas that he was painting. And of course, J.R.R. Tolkien eventually finished The Lord of the Rings. But this, this story that he wrote in the middle of that was just a beautiful story. That everything we do for the Lord matters. And the frustrations and the toils of this world that we never quite reach our potential. We never quite achieve what it is we wanted to achieve. That somehow, if this is true, if those words in Revelation are true, that there's some continuity between now and the next life. That somehow, in some way beyond that we can even understand, that what we do now matters eternally. And so I want to encourage you to trust no matter how frustrating your vocations are on the side of eternity, that on the other side, you will have perfect fulfillment in your vocation forever. And remember, God has given you good works to do, that work and responsibility are part of God's good creation of what it means to be in the image of God. Even if it's fallen and twisted and all of that, it's still part of what he's called you to, to take responsibility in the stations to which he has called you, to give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because it all matters eternally. Amen. Let's pray. Why don't you take a minute between you and the Lord now and just meditate on whatever vocation he has called you to, whether it is work that you're getting paid for or some other station in life that you are currently in. Between you and the Lord, offer it to him. Ask him for the help to do everything to bring him glory. Thank you, Lord, that you are working in us as we are trying to work out our salvation because we need you working in us, Lord. We need you to help us give ourselves fully to, to your work, to the work you have for us, to overcome the thorns and thistles and our own sin and circumstances that we can't control, to give ourselves fully to whatever it is you have in front of us, whatever relationships, whatever work, whatever it may be, God, I pray that you would help us to give ourselves fully to the work you have for us, to bring you glory. We thank you, Lord, for the good works that you've prepared in advance for us to do. Help us, Lord, to walk in them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.